Hello? Hi, this is Pam Electric Ghost. Hi. Good, so you can hear me. I'm, I'm just going to give a little brief intro to the Pam Electric Ghost show. We're talking to Sarah Gibson. Mm-hmm. And uh, we interview indie artists from around the world who've been doing it for about two years. We're on Spotify because Anchor FM is part of Spotify. And we're actually sponsored by Spotify as well. Um, so, yeah, we've been interviewing about 30 artists over the last two years. And now we have Sarah Gibson on, and we're go. I'm so happy to be on the show. Thank you. Yeah, so we sent you the questions, which um, hopefully you got. Um, mm-hmm. But we we typically, you know, run through them, and then we talk about like how you create music. We like to we're musicians and producers ourselves, awesome. so uh, so we like to get into uh, the the details of how people create how creators create their work so but we always always like to start with like the question like when did you first get into music and at what age well I have been into music as long as I can remember um I believe three is my earliest memory of it and it was just my mom exposed me to a lot of musicals and Wizard of Oz was by far my favorite I used to reenact it constantly day to day in the house (laughs) um So I started there and because my mom saw I had an interest in music, she put me in some child choirs and um, I did that for a while until I got into public school and um, it didn't really stop from there. Honestly, Uh, it just continued until I was in middle school and that's when I started to create my own music. So um, is, is is your voice your primary instrument or do you play other instruments? I sing, I play guitar and the piano as well. And the piano ends up translating into like synths and MIDI and all of that good stuff, okay. which is my main instrument for production. Okay. Yeah. Cause I'm, I'm a keyboardist. So I'm, I'm a, I'm a lover of, um, I'm kind of old school in terms of electronic music. I kind of look toward like Keith Emerson and, uh, yes. And, uh, you know, the old original Phil. Um, uh, Peter Gabriel Genesis. I'm I'm kind of an old school progressive rock guy. <laughs> That's great. I love that. I have like Moogs and Prophets and like real 808s. And I Lindsay. love Moogs. <laughs> yeah, I'm just totally diving into Moogs. I just have tons of modular Moogs. But um, yeah. So I mean, that's really cool because I think they're great creative tools. Like besides like having a guitar. I understand a lot of people today, they use the DAW, the digital audio workstation, they use their Apple. But to me, like an analog synth, like a Moog, it's like having a Fender Strat or a Telecaster. Yeah. It, it has a, it's a living, breathing electronic instrument that acts similar to those you know, acoustic instruments in terms of its of being able to give you different tones all the time. You're totally um, right. Yeah, so, so that's cool. So when did you decide that you actually you know had material and you wanted to have a voice you wanted to create your own music because there's a lot of people that get into music and they don't they never write their own music they they play other people's music or mm-hmm. you know they're set they, but they when did you decide i've got something to say and i want to express it uh i was really young i remember my babysitter she showed me a song that she had written i think i was like 10 and she was 14 or 15 at the time and at the time i could read sheet music now i go primarily off of ear which is a blessing and a curse um but she showed me her song and i kind of thought you know what like if she can do it i can do it because for some reason as a kid you have this perception that only like these big musicians write music i don't i don't know why but just seeing like my babysitter do it I I wanted to and so really all I did was just like write down some lyrics and I came up with a little melody um I wasn't really playing instruments too much at that time um like I I could play piano a little bit but it wasn't anything all that impressive and so I started to just like write poetry and put melodies to it and then when I was 12 years old I got my first guitar and I was writing music constantly like when I wasn't at school I was writing music so guitar is like your primary writing instrument rather than like a piano? Yeah, right out the gate. Um, I didn't really start fully getting into piano a lot more until I was about 15. And then they're they're equal for me at this point. It's just like depends on the mood I'm in. 
Yeah, we get the piano. I I was in a band, and what, what happened was everybody went and did their own thing, and I kept on going. Mm-hmm. And and synthesizers allowed me to kind of be one man band, like what Prince did. Yeah. And so I I built a studio, and I just do everything. Um, and because no, everybody stopped showing up, and I kept on going. Um, mm-hmm. But what I liked about the piano is that you can write the whole, you can write the bass parts, you can write the melodies, you can write yeah. everything. You can play drums, you can. You can do every, you know, string parts, everything, horn parts. And so I just like, I started on a clarinet. And oh, wow. I, went, I started from a from a wind instrument and then I got into synths and then I, I incorporated some of the techniques that wind instruments have into my music, mm-hmm. um, which is um, kind of jazzy, but uh, jazz influenced ideas coming from winds and stuff. But yeah, I think it's cool how people, you know, come up with different ways of doing it. It's cool that you actually can do like the guitar and the piano because those are like the primary writing instruments. They are. Yeah. And I I love what you said about the piano because it's so true. And especially with like digital recording and um, the way that music is produced in this day and age, like learning how to play the keyboard has been such a benefit for me because really like all of the music I have out now, um, I arranged in nearly every song, like a hundred percent of everything, like even the drums. And that was just purely because I was able to assign samples to certain keys and whatnot and, um, use like electronic drum kits. And then, um, if I wanted to have an organic instrument, then it was already all written and roadmapped. And like, I didn't need to know how to, to write the sheet music for it because I had it all put out in MIDI, you know? Yeah. That's what's great about MIDI. I mean, I, I, I kind of am a, a weird bird is that I started on Tascam analog tape recorders mm-hmm. back in the 80s and what I did is I, I moved from Tascam 4 and 8 track tape machines to Zoom R24s Yeah, and, and I never went to the DAW I just kept on using my analog direct into the Zoom oh wow just overdub everything and I manually play everything and I just keep on overdubbing and it's kind of like the old school. It's kind of like when you went to a studio and you actually went on tape and overdub. And I call it expansive sound because it's, it's, I just layer things in a kind of expansive, kind of ambient, progressive, like what Yes and all these other bands used cool. to do. Yeah, I continued to do that. But I understand how the doll works and I was into it. But I, analog sense, I just don't like how they get captured mm. in, in the doll. And like my modes, I like to put them direct into my, into my Zoom. Totally makes sense. Um, but yeah, it's cool what you can do today as one person that you can, if you've got the drive mm-hmm. and you like Townsend, I don't know if you ever heard about the story of Pete Townsend. He used to write everything. Yeah. He used to write all the parts and then he would go and give like Quadrophenia to the band and then they had to like take all his parts and, and give, you know, Entwistle was a better bass player than Pete. So he he took all the bass parts and made them better. Yeah. I mean, Keith Moon was a better drummer than what his drum machines could do. And Daltrey could sing better than Pete. And so <laughs> he would, but the original demos, the songs are so are very close <laughs> to what the Who actually did. I mean, they just have more life because the rest of the band did it. Mm-hmm. But it's just interesting. Like, if you've got the drive, you can write everything. No, you really can. And I, I mean, it's funny because there will be parts that I'll write and I'll be like, you know what? Like, it sounds fine, but someone else could do it better, but it's already written. So I, like, bring in a friend who's a better musician for that specific instrument, you know. And then they play it for me, and I'm like, awesome. But it's amazing. Like, I've really gotten into digital recording because of, like, that freedom that it gives me. Um, And, I mean, I started out doing, like, blues and rock and roll kind of music, which I freaking freaking Mm -hmm. love. But it it wasn't, like... And it's sad that this has happened, but it wasn't marketable anymore. And so what I did is I'm like, okay, how can I take like these darker um, tones in my music and like the lyricism that I use and update it a little bit? And so I messed around for a solid year, just like getting to know DAWs and um, understanding all the different plugins and um, expanding my skills on the keyboard and guitar and finding like a like more of like a pop electronic feel that was still speaking to like me as an artist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's interesting in your write up on Spotify, it talks about like you've influenced by Stevie Nicks and then Leonard. Yeah. <laughs> and then you've got this kind of dark pop that, that's kind of synth wave kind of, no, I love like, I think MGMT kind of has a darkness psychedelic yeah. nature. And I kind of pick up that kind of 
thing that they're doing. They got this like Sid Barrett, Pink Floyd vibe, and you're bringing out this kind of darkness. And you know, my, my I'm looking at an album called Dark Ghost. And I kind of bring out this dark. Yeah. Of, um, and there's like dark wave, synth wave. Like dark wave is a little twist on synth mm-hmm. wave, and it seems like you're kind of in that zone. Yeah. Um, where you're 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 bringing in a classic, you know, person like a Stevie Nicks with the kind of pop crap. Yeah. But then a letter poem is like that kind of experimental nature. You know. Mm-hmm. Which is well, cool. thank you. you know, I like I, Yeah, I love that kind of like you're mixing like a lot of genres, like dark pop and hip hop and like a little new wave. <laughs> you know, everything. And uh, to me that's where the music is headed when you combine mm-hmm. genres. Is that what you find? Is like you, you, you came from blues, you came from that, and you found out that you know, like Stevie Ray Vaughan went for years not being able to play Texas blues mm-hmm. anywhere but Texas yeah. until he finally blew up um, and kind of forced it and forced people to come yeah. to him. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, you don't always can't be like Stevie Ray Vaughan to force the, the genre to get back. You know, you, sometimes you got to slide into another genre. no it's true like i feel like genres are really starting to blur and like i'll see country artists collaborating with hip-hop artists which for me like that's weird for me <laughs> but um yeah that's big that's big nowadays that's a big no it thing. is a big new thing but like i feel like pop and hip-hop they work together really seamlessly and for me like growing up with like rock music and metal and all of that i have such a love for guitar and electric guitar yeah, and so yeah. i'm like trying to integrate electric guitar in with like this more modern version of pop music and uh, hip hop. And I love that it's being so well recepted because I mean, the music that I put out before and you probably haven't heard it because I did take it down off of like a lot of platforms. Cause I rebranded um, it was, it was very retro and it was recorded in RCA studio a in Nashville um, with musicians that have played with like Dolly Parton and um, like, like the Eagles. <laughs> I, I love like you know flying burrito brothers and eagles and i mean i'm a i'm a big fan of like classic rock i'm a but i know that genre is not well well received anymore so i understand their direction you're going yeah but i mean <laughs> it was awesome like the experience was awesome because it that album or i guess it was an ep at the time like that wasn't recorded digitally like it was all analog so it had such a warm like retro feel oh. to it I, yeah, I I would probably want to hear that. Yeah, I <laughs> I would be happy to show it to you. It's it's a it's a bit of a departure from what I'm doing now for sure, but it was nice to get a chance to record that kind of music. But when I put it out and I saw my demographic was mainly people like my parents' age, that's totally fine. Yeah. But like the main consuming public is going to be like in their late teens, early twenties, and so I was missing out on the majority of the market. And I thought, well, you know, like I love music; it's my passion. Like I do it because I care about it, but I would also like to make a living at it. And so I had to yeah. evolve. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got to make the right decision. You know, it's like, like a lot of times as an artist, you know, I just did soundscapes without a vocal. Oh, cool! And then I came up with the idea of creating my alter ego, Josephine Electric, mm-hmm. which is like a, a created voice through a vocoder. I use the Roland. I love vocoders. The change. I use a VT4 that actually changes me into this, like a soprano, a soprano, like a soprano sound, and it makes me have a female voice. And I created a whole mythology around my band that has a lead singer named Josephine. Electric. That's cool. And she's a ghost, and it's a whole band of ghosts. And she has a sister named Stephanie. And the whole band is like kind of like the Gorillas. This idea of like a fictional band. I love that. But when I did that, I went from twelve hundred listens on SoundCloud to now I have ninety thousand listens. Wow. And then, then I got picked up by Anchor and Spotify to do this podcast because they saw what I was doing. Yeah. And um, and so, it, you know, and then I got a record contract with Bentley Records. That's so sick. Um, so, it, yeah, so it's just, I, I, I changed. And I, I never wanted to sing. I was just a player. Mm-hmm. I was just, you know, I, I was a musician. I, did, I didn't sing at all. Uh, and then when I finally took the step to do create that character, now I got to this point, mm-hmm. which is weird. Like sometimes you have to transform either to get out there. And it, it wasn't like a business decision. It just kind of was a happy accident. I was playing with my machine. And I said, where did this voice come from? Yeah. <laughs> and I just kind of doubled down on it. I said, like, that's a feminine voice coming out of my, in my ear. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to 
can't imagine what I think the female side of me would mm-hmm. do. And I created this whole idea and it kind of just, it just blew up. You know? <laughs> and so you never know. It's like you, sometimes you have to change, you know, to me, it's like what happened with Bowie, you know, Bowie with David Jones. He couldn't get yeah. traction. When he created Ziggy, he, he got all the traction in the world. He, he totally, then he kept on creating yeah. miracles. You know, Aladdin Sane, the Thin White Duke. He, he, he always had to be a character. It's pretty interesting how that works. Like, I have noticed that as well. Like, when I was just, like, Sarah Gibson, um, S-A-R-A-H Gibson, um, and I was putting out my blues music, and it was, like, extremely – it's weird. Like, I feel like people don't want pure authenticity. Like, they want to see it kind of through, like, a theatrical lens. They want to see these deeply personal things through something that feels a little more separated from themselves so that they feel more like a spectator. And um, that's been really interesting, but, like, so fun to work with. Like, I don't know. Did you see my Blood Diamond music video? Yeah. It, cool. Yeah, it's super like it's a caricature of myself for sure. Um, and like directly commenting on, you know, I feel like in pop music, you hear a lot of songs about how people are talking about they're going to be famous and they're rich and like how everybody loves them and they can get all the ladies and whatever. Um, so yeah. it's kind of like saying, you know, I want to be that person too, but I also like, like, talking about like the the problems with that but instead of like trying to be preachy and like shoving that down someone's throat it's like i created a character almost to um to say yeah, that through that's why i kind of thought that you did that because I, I see that a lot nowadays people kind of create a mm-hmm. uh, you know even even people who think somebody's authentic a lot of times it is actually a persona you actually meet them mm, yeah <laughs> can i can i went to a hip-hop club in new york and I play, I, and I'm like all these guys with gold chains and six pack abs. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I might come on stage singing. Like, <laughs> That's amazing. You know? And I didn't know what was gonna happen. And I, I, this guy comes up to me. He's a real tough guy. I'm like, oh no, he's gonna try to like take me down. <laughs> and and then 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 the guy asked me wanted to ask me like about technical questions, and he didn't have the demeanor that his look mm-hmm. had. He was just as techno nerdy as yeah. me. But he worked his buff and his like street, you know, cred. But he was not what he appeared. To yeah, be. you know, it was almost like that was as a, as a persona in itself that he wasn't what he portrayed. Mm-hmm. And so that's like then I learned like all these guys I thought might be like give me a tr- trouble. They all went and asked me like what I was using and what kind of thing. They were like deep into the production, even though their image would make you like oh maybe I don't know if I can talk to these guys. <laughs> So it's like I started to realize like everybody's putting on an act. Yeah, like they they are a little bit. There's like a bit of a persona to most people in the industry. It's it's pretty interesting. Yeah. So 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 you've been um that you've transformed yourself. So maybe you kind of go back like when you first came out and you did this whole thing in Nashville and you you were working on that. So you you had probably like the idea that that was gonna that was gonna work yeah well I like you know since I put so much time into music as a kid um I developed my talent pretty quickly so I grew up in a smaller area and people just felt like you know anyone with talent like they're gonna make it like it's gonna happen it's gonna happen fast and so like I had had that said to me since I was a little kid like you're gonna make it you're gonna make it you're gonna make it like you're gonna blow up you're gonna blow up and so even though I didn't have like an inflated ego, but I did have inflated expectations. And so Mm -hmm. I get picked up by this producer. My dad actually met him in Costco. It was like an interesting story, but um, I get picked up by this producer and I'd written a ton of music, but I had whittled it down to about like eight songs that I felt like were really, really good. And so I showed him and he was like, this is amazing. Like it's very unique. Let's get you out to Nashville and go get all of this recorded. And so over the next couple of months, we um, get all of the musicians in line because we were using studio musicians and um, Mm -hmm. get all of the songs prepared. We did a little bit of like reworking on the music and then we go out there and I mean, it was an amazing experience, but um, 
you know, I met with a lot of executives, like um, the president of ASCAP, um, Songwriters Association, so- Songwriting Association, and um, okay. like the Nashville Songwriting Association, and you know, all these different artists, and like the head of the RCA Studios. And I very soon got the understanding that. I was to be used to like mold into like a money making machine. You know, it was like, oh, oh, they wanted to turn you into the next like Shania Twain or turn you into a, like a pop star. Well, yeah, more like into a country star. And for me, it's like I don't have any problem with country music, but that's not where my like heart lies oh. as a musician. So they wanted to kind of transform you into like the you know Dolly Parton part two or something. Yeah, well, namely Taylor Swift, really. That was, like, the word that kept oh, coming. that was their, their target to make you, like, a clone? Yeah, make me a clone of Taylor Swift, because I was young. Like, I was 17 at the time. You know, I was really young. Yeah. And um, they wanted to target, like, young girls and all of this stuff, and my music was pretty dark, you know? Like, I was singing about... Like, I had a song called I Sold My Soul to the Reaper. I had another one called Too Much Love for the Wicked. And that's how I've always been. I just write pretty dark music. And so I was meeting with, like, the head of ASCAP, and he was saying my music doesn't speak to teenage girls. And I felt like that was so funny because I was a teenage girl. Um, Well, it's a different type of teenage girl. They might listen to, like, Nirvana or Pearl Jam, or they might listen to, like, Judas Priest or, you know, Iron Maiden. It doesn't mean there aren't girls listening to that. Exactly. Um, <laughs> you know, but, but they, they have a demographic they want to hit. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, that Taylor Swift demographic's not listening to Iron Maiden. No, they're not <laughs> listening to Iron Maiden. And so, like, even though I found, like, such an appreciation from these people, like, they appreciated what I'd done and, like, my talent, there wasn't, like, support for what I was doing at that time. And so I was in, like, a very... um combative atmosphere the whole time I was there and like the recording process itself was like absolutely transcendent with the musicians I was working with you know I'd never experienced anything quite like that so it's going to school it's like you're going to college yeah you learn yeah I can understand that no it was beautiful (laughs) but then like I get out of that and there was a lot of turbulence and like the direction that I should go like with marketing and people were constantly telling me to change my image and change my image and um you know, my parents were kind of the same way. Cause like I adore them and they've been a huge support for me, but they felt like, Oh, these people have so much experience. And so like, no one was in my corner. It was, it was really hard. Yeah. Everybody wanted to do this. Yeah. Well, it's hard because like when you want to do the darker stuff, Part- you know, like you want to go to Kurt Cobain direction, people are like, you know, well, look, look what happens when you do that. <laughs> so, you know, or like Evanescence, you know, you could be like Evan, Evanescence or something, but, you know, there's, they have a big, you know, you could argue like that was a big, yeah. you know, a lot of people like that, but you can go darker. And it no, works. it can't. Um, but yeah, but there's, there's always these people that want to change and mold an artist. You know, they always want to take somebody and turn them into the next, you know, Beyonce or the next Taylor Swift or the next Van Halen or yeah, it is always clones of every band that like, hits it. You know, like you know the famous like you know one like monkeys. Yeah, the monkeys are like a clone of the Beatles. Yeah, you find something that works. <laughs> but then, yeah, yeah, you just run it to death, <laughs> and then you know like ends up being like disco. It dies because you're, like you run that genre too much, and you know I think like EDM is kind of running into yeah. that where the structure was so tight. Mm-hmm. And it had to have the drop, and it had to be that way. So we, we get how many songs that sound the same, and then it ends up dying like this, yep. and getting put into the retro bin. Because if you get too much of the same thing, they eventually burn it out. Yeah, and people like they ex- they know what they're going to hear when they listen to it, like in a way where they're not getting surprised. Like when I listen to a song and it surprises me, that song goes on my playlist, you know. Be- and I'm not saying like everything I listen to is super unpredictable because I like some mainstream pop and whatnot, just like everybody else. Like it's fun. Um, but I yeah. always love to get surprised by music. And I felt like anything unique about me when I was in Nashville, it was like everyone was telling me how unique I was and how awesome my music was. And then wanting to change everything that they supposedly found so unique and awesome. Um, so when I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so when I finally was able to separate myself from that situation, it was like a four year long ordeal. Um, Cause I was like contractually obligated and 
all of this fun stuff. Yeah. When I was able to separate myself from that, my parents, it was like, not only did I realize that direction wasn't fruitful because like <clears throat> one, I was like my music after it was recorded and with all of the opposition, it had turned into kind of like a mutation of like my music plus like some like weird country remix kind of thing. Um, so it, it wasn't mm. what I had hoped it would be. And it wasn't, I don't think, um, it became even less marketable in this weird compromise that we came to. So I decided to separate myself from that. And I was like, you know, I will always be a blues and rock and roll girl for sure. Um, but how can I like incorporate that in a way where it's like, I'm able to separate myself from this crappy past experience I've had and also um, play into the more modern influences that seem to be working a little bit better. And um, that audiences seem to be relating to a bit more in this day and age, you know? <clears throat> Yeah, because, I mean, when I'm looking at Crushed Velvet and I was listening to it, it kind of, like, Evanescence, Evanescence comes to mind and, uh, you know, a lot of the kind of dark wave kind of sound that I've heard, you know. And, and not exactly what, um, you know, some, some of the synthwave bands are doing, but, but it has, like, the, like, I can hear the Stevie Nicks influence. I can hear um, Cohen. I can hear, you know, you actually, you know, breaking out of what you had described what your first album was you know you're actually truer to what you want yeah like the darker is coming through like the metal influence is being kind of morphed into this new kind of synth kind of dark dark yeah like i like to take um so like metallica for me is a huge inspiration um i like to take those structures like the structures of those songs and the chord progressions and the keys that they're played in and mm. I like to interpret that into like electronic music so for me it's like I can listen to metal and I could listen to that back to back and hear like where they overlap but then they're still like distinctly different from each other so it's been do you find when you're yeah do you, sorry but do you find when you run with a lower bpm that you can kind of get more expansive or more ambient pardon like if you do a, like the beats per minute when you slow it down, yeah, when yeah. you actually make things, then then you kind of can stretch things out and it becomes more ambient, more psychedelic, more, you know, uh, you know, like a, a atmospheric kind of sound. Yeah, thing. no, for sure. <laughs> people always get after me with the low BPM because I mean I'm in the pop genre, so people want to hear something that like slumps and it hits. <laughs> And um, you have like this breakdown in the chorus and everything. Um, but I really like the lower BPM because like you said, I'm able to create like a landscape um, instrumentally. There's so much more room for that. And there's more room to like put in little tidbits and hear them and appreciate them. Because when I write music and I arrange songs, I want to like see an, a landscape in my mind. Like I want it to take me somewhere visually in my mind. Like a sound, sound painting. Like Hendrix described Electric Lady as a sound painting when somebody asked yes. him what it was. It, he said, this is a sound painting. And I always, that stuck in my head because that's what a lot of progressive and, you know, experimental musicians, they create sound Exactly. Paintings, you know. Uh, and it's when you go slower, that you, like a Pink Floyd, mm -hmm. you know, you start to hear all everything. You can hear the strings, you can hear all the layering. Because if it goes so fast, you know, you have to put your headphones on to hear what's going on. Uh, and then you might miss it because it's going so quick. But when it's slower, then everything kind of comes out. Um, and you can kind of, you know, you know, hear all the different you know, levels of percussion and things that you do as a, as a musician. You can, you can, you know, really build like, a, you know, a painter. It's true. A painter layer. And, and artists that really thinking about how they want to present, you, you tend to have a lot of ladies. Mm -hmm. No, it's really, really true. And like the interesting thing about it is I feel like when it's slower and you're able to have a little bit more of a concept of like a landscape and, um, you know, feel I feel like you're not filling in as much space. Like you allow a little bit more room. And so it's nice for me to listen to my music and hear like all of what I've put into it. But there's also like this nice space. Like um, 
my marketing manager said that he listens to my music and there's like a type of space in it that's almost eerie. Like it leaves you alone with your thoughts. And I was like, that's cool. <laughs> I, I like that. Well, yeah. <laughs> it leaves you alone. That's how you want people. To yeah. <laughs> it's cool. Cause like lots of pop oh, music yeah. distracts you from your thoughts. And so the fact that he said that it leaves you alone with them, I was like, that's, I didn't even mean to do that. So that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's so many people want to run, you know, 160 beats per minute, 180. They want to, you know, even get really faster. But just because they want to do like a club banger, they want to get the, you know, they want to get people like aerobic. Yeah. You know, it's like, like, like Jane Fonda workout. Like, I'm like, what's going on? It's like, okay, like, do you want somebody to actually feel what's going on? Is it all just about mm-hmm. the And some of you think it's like, it's like, do you even know what the artist is saying? Or is it just yeah. the beat? And it seems there's certain producers are into this, like just creating these beats and everybody's like, yeah, that's a jamming beat. But it's like, okay, but what, what does mm-hmm. it say? And it's almost like in like fifties bubblegum music doesn't really mm-hmm. say anything, but it's popular. Mm-hmm. And there's a danger in that. They go, okay. Yeah. But what does it really mean? Yeah. You know, if you're a songwriter, you want to paint a picture. You want to tell a story. It's true. And if you're just doing this kind of bangers, like type of thing, it's like, how is that telling a story? Yeah. And you I know? mean, I've heard bangers that definitely tell like a story. And I feel like there's a place for them. Like when I listen to a record and it's like, it has kind of an ebb and flow and like it goes up tempo and then lower and it slows down. It's like, I think a lot of modern pop albums are super front loaded. So like you get all of like the hit singles and the bangers in the front. And then um, as it goes through, you get the more contemplative songs. So like they're still there, but I think in the industry, there's also that recognition that like people do just also want their those songs that they can turn their brain off to or like run to at the gym or a scream at the top of their lungs while they're drunk. Yeah. You know, I think there is a place for that type of music as well. Yeah, I think what happens is like there are people that are into music that don't actually really mm-hmm. like music. <laughs> And and in order to make money, you sell yeah. to them. But if but if you're want to go back and be like a James Taylor or be like Carly Simon or be like Neil Diamond or you know the Beatles or the Stones, and you want to do an EXO on Main Street. There's a different type of audience. That's it's true. Have, you know that's gonna listen to the Wall. We're gonna listen to you know the Beach Boys, Pet mm-hmm. Sounds, and actually listen to the whole thing. And, and it's a different type of audience. And and so. And sometimes that audience becomes massive and sometimes mm-hmm. it doesn't, you know, it, um, but an artist, you know, if you, you, you know, I, my heroes are like yeah. Keith Emerson, you know, there's only a certain type of person today is going to like yeah. Keith Emerson. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, so, you know, or Tony Banks or, you know, any of those guys that used to really get into you know, synthesizer playing like the, 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 the big, you know, names and synthesize synthesis uh, aren't what people listen to now. Electronic music, they assume all electronic musicians are not Keith Emerson or Tony Banks. Uh, they're, they're like, you know, DJs. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's not exactly an electronic musician from the purest standpoint of what, when, you know, the musicians that created like uh, switched mm-hmm. on Bach, you know, that, that's a different type of it musician. Is. Um, so, yeah, so that's you know it's a there's a market for everything but I think some people have forgotten about that level yeah <laughs> I think like I just have a feeling that it's coming back around because just like the music that's becoming popular is really just antithetical to what was popular 10 years ago because 10 years ago yeah we were still coming out of that like boy band Britney Spears thing where everything was hyper, hyper, hyper manufactured. You, you find someone that is a good dancer, good singer, they're really attractive. And then you uh, create like this whole image around them. You pair all of these attractive men together and you create in sync, whatever. Um, And so we were just barely like starting to roll off of that. And then we're getting more like pop punk, um, type of music like plain white tees was there for a millisecond but like that kind of music started to happen and now i think everyone's sick of that it's like we've seen that we've heard that we know that's not real and so even though the music that's coming out is like you have the mumble rap kind of thing going on i think that's just like the anti-music it's like people are sick of hearing what they've heard for the last 20 years and so it's like let's put out something that like doesn't necessarily appeal to the people that are over the age of 25, you know, but 
it's like, okay, this is, this is for us. Like we're taking that back. We're saying, Hey studios, like you don't have the the power over us anymore as consumers. Um, so it's interesting to me. So I think right now how everything's kind of ridiculous, like the song that broke the record for thriller (laughs) as like number, like weeks in the number one slot was old town road by Lil Nas X or whatever. And that was just a silly song inspired by a video game. Yeah, it's kind of like a 50s, kind of like a 1950s. Yeah, exactly. But it was just silly. Yeah, silly kind of nonsense thing. But like, you know, like how how much is that doggy in a window? Yeah. It doesn't really mean anything, but, you know, it's catchy. Um, So, you you know, you're like... ...and stuff. So you you make kind of catchy songs. It's not bad. I mean, people like those. I mean, they like these little two-minute, three-minute songs were like that but yeah what's interesting is like oh you're breaking up a little bit they all came back to life and now there are people all over the world using like modern versions of the mode Mm -hmm. in the profit five and they're like you're breaking up pretty bad yeah, like like an eight, like an eighties, you know, band, like a new human league, <laughs> mm-hmm. and there's that kind of thing going on. You got bands like Fleet or Keeney, which is like yeah. the, the the Riot Girl band, you know, and then they're out out performing, a, you know, a lot of male rock bands. Yeah, Riot Girl. <laughs> yeah, the Riot Girl kind of like their newest album is a mixture. Of- oh no, I can't hear you anymore. I can't hear you. Oh, you can hear me now? I can hear you now. Yeah, you're breaking up pretty bad for a second. Okay, yeah, but I'm saying it seems like there is a kind of resurgence of this kind of riot girl, new wave intersection uh, where some of that stuff is coming back where people actually are playing, you know, and and creating like statements with their Mm -hmm. music that are like album oriented statements yeah i love that well i i love the whole concept album thing and i think that's starting to happen again finally you know um and and more of like a mainstream way too and i think that's good because it's encouraging people to listen to the whole body of work instead of just a single and the business has been so single focused for a hot minute now i mean that's what i was always told when i was younger it's like you just need the single and it's like well i mean sure for sure like you do need a single but i love listening to albums front to back and like getting a whole story out of it yeah, yeah like born to run yeah you know, born to run is like, is like when you listen to a full or like you know you listen to tapestry I mean, that, that, that's why I go back and I listen to these classic albums. And I'm mm-hmm. like, that is what where, where I'm headed. Like, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway from Jazz. Yeah. I mean, it's a concept album. You know, Tommy, Quadrophenia, you know, Sticks. Uh, all these bands that used to, you had to sit down in the vinyl, you'd go into a room, and you'd listen to the whole Yes album. You know, you, that's yeah. what you would do. You'd listen, you'd listen to, you know, like, uh, Fragile. You'd listen to the mm-hmm. whole thing. You wouldn't go pick and choose, which I understand because, you know, the, the medium changed where people have, you know, their iPhones and their iPods make a great playlist. Once they create these playlists, people can kind of just pick whatever they want. And then that kind of drove the industry to say albums are dead. You don't need to do albums. And, but, but you know, bands are hip hop actually kind of started changing mm-hmm. that. when you have Kendrick Lamar's like, you know. Yeah. Fans. That, that you had to listen to the whole thing, you know, like even a guy like Tyler the Creator, Igor. I mean, you have to listen. It's, it's a yeah, concept. you have to listen to the yeah, whole thing. Yeah, yeah there's, there's a lot. Hip hop, I think, kind of drove it back. Where in hip hop, a lot of albums are designed to be listened to all the way through. At the exactly, concert. that's what I'm saying. It's like that's starting to happen again, and like a lot of these hip hop artists are making their own beats, and especially the smaller ones that are coming up now. Um, and so it's like you're getting a resurgence of like the artist instead of the company that has created this like whole blend of everything. Like if you look at the writers on Britney Spears's albums, there's like 15 per song, you know. And then if you go on Igor yeah. <laughs> with Tyler, the creator, it's just like him and one other person, you know. Yeah, because that's kind of like the singer songwriter to me is like the 
you know, I go back and listen to like you know, Blood on the Tracks, mm-hmm. you know, Dylan. I mean, Dylan's like the ultimate like singer, songwriter, poet, and he would come up with these, you know, just the idea that you, you don't have to have the perfect in pitch voice, but if you say something vital, if you, you know, have a band like Robbie Robertson in the band behind yeah. you, you're, you're going to create like this Americana awesome stuff that just people have to do. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of Dylan kind of going out there and said, you know, I don't have to have perfect pitch. I don't have to be Sinatra, but I can say something. Yeah. And then I can have really good musicians behind me and we can actually put something together like Blonde on Blonde and we create this music. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And people end up coming to him even after he got booed <laughs> in, in Newport Jazz. We got booed in London. And then suddenly everybody realized like Dylan was saying yeah. um, that to me, it's like, it seems to be happening and again that people are realizing the singer songwriters are. Important. They are. Well, it's cause they're like, you need that really personal touch to music sometimes, you know, like it's fun to hear songs about turning up in the club or whatever. Um, but sometimes you, it, when you sit down and you listen to a song, like there's this song called national anthem by gaslight anthem. It's not the actual national anthem. Um, but it is by far one of the most beautiful songs I've ever heard. And it was just written by the lead singer. And, um, it is so different than every other song on their album. It's just guitar. Like you have a little bit of percussion, that type of thing, but it, it tugs at you because the words are what is meant to be listened to in that song. It doesn't have this huge accompaniment that's supposed to get you up and moving. You're, you're meant to contemplate it. And goodness, like I've listened to that song probably like 300 times and it still moves me. Like, there there are certain songs that will do that to you and I feel like it's always the songs that come from such a deeply personal place like with the fewer people involved you know yeah if you have a mix like this is the problem I think sometimes with um like the Dawes is Dawes will tell you like if you have key changes they're like a weird they'll tell you (laughs) you know and and the thing is like if you go back in the history of rock in our history, a lot of music. There's a lot of bands that did a lot of interesting key changes that if they ran through a doll, they would get rid of it. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of tells you like the, the the authenticity and originality of letting people, actually musicians, play something and not let the computer take over. Um, there's something about that. There's something about not having it super layered um, and being honest. I think it's the honesty of like doing the on you know, maybe the second or third take and not doing it 10, 15 times mm-hmm. to try to make it perfect. Sometimes the imperfections in music actually make it. Big. Oh, you're right. And I mean, I'm a massive perfectionist. So it's like, it, it's been very difficult for me to like be accepting of that. <laughs> um, like when I go in and I do vocal takes, I, I could go in and do 400 vocal takes if I really wanted to, but I've really like, this is what I do is I, We'll be like, okay, you you get six. That's all you get. And if there's a little mistake that's like glaring that really bothers me, I can go in and fix that little spot. But that's that's what I do for myself so that I don't just like make it too perfect. Like something that was very eye opening to me is um, one of my followers saw me live and was like, I love your voice so much live. And they were like almost better than like your studio voice because there's like more like to it live and I was like oh man that's really eye-opening you know because it's like live I'm not thinking so much about like oh I need to sing this part perfectly or in this this type of in this type of way it's like I'm just singing it the way that it comes out live and it has more emotion it has more energy and that that made me realize that just like the pure voice is so powerful you know yeah it's the honesty like what I used to I I read the story about Hendrix and Hendrix was like a total perfectionist and like you know he had like 20 30 takes on voodoo child of all these solos mm-hmm. and the engineers are like i can't tell which one's better yeah. than the next because it's all it's all hindered. yeah and it, it, it's like but but the thing is it seemed like the earlier takes had like an authenticity and a power that were more impressive mm-hmm. and so they would tend to go with the earlier tapes and that's what i've noticed with a lot of bands that, like if you t- when i talk to them they'll say like like the early like the third or you know the second or third take Usually it's better than the 10th or 15th. Oh, always. That's why I only give myself six because it's like usually the yeah. second one's going to be the one I go with. But it's like I just have a couple yeah. for leeway, you know? Yeah, it just seems like what happens is like sometimes you start like not being as honest. Yes. Further further down the line, 
you get away from the authenticity and the honesty of the original recording. And you might have realized that, oh, I said too much or I did this. And I, you know, and, and it's actually more, more honest and more real in early. It, it actually tends to be like what your audience said, member said, like it feels like a live performance. Yeah, no, for real. And it, it's crazy because there was this one song I was super hung up on. It was Ride. And we had recorded, me and my engineer, we recorded the vocals on like an older microphone as like a scratch vocal. And so we got a nice like Neumann U87 and we were re-recording all the vocals. But for some reason, that song, I could not get to sound like anywhere close to that first recording. And it's not like it was like it sounded bad. It was something about the emotion and like the delivery of it, because that was the first take. It was a one take um, that vocal. And I was getting so frustrated and I was like, I don't get what the problem is. And um my engineer was like when I hear you sing this song for like the 9,000th time you know we've been trying at it for days he's like I don't believe what you're saying the same way that I did the first time you sang it and so I was like you know what maybe it was recorded on an older microphone it's not as high of quality but he was right like I believe that take more like I listened to it and I'm like that is the take like that's the take and So when you listen to the songs back to back, like if you're really into audio, like I am, you know, you you can hear the difference in microphone, but that microphone will never make up for what that first performance had, you know? Yeah. It's kind of like if you listen to the basement tapes, Mm -hmm. the original version, they just put them out and they were just done in a basement on a reel to reel. But they, the original basement tapes that they, they put out like with the band, they sound so impressive and they're not recorded with very high fidelity Mm-mm. equipment. But the honesty of those recordings is like pure Americana, Dylan and the band, you know, this Canadian band playing Americana music in this strange kind of yeah. mix. But they, it, it sounds so real. It sounds like even better than the, the studio version of the band. Yeah. And it's, they finally put it out and a lot of people had bootlegs for you know not supposed to have bootlegs but a lot of people had them (laughs) and they always like mentioned that those original tapes were so much better than what the finalized version was yeah no it's it's crazy one of my favorite albums um this was a very transformative album for me it's echo silence patience and grace by the foo fighters um that was recorded in a garage (laughs) and holy cow it's it's just so lovely like it doesn't have that corporate touch to it you know um you can just tell they sat down and they wrote it and there was no one over their shoulder telling them to change specific things and man i i literally i went to the library um and I just saw it and I had listened to the Foo Fighters a little bit on the radio or whatever because I'm pretty young. I'm I'm twenty-four. So like the Foo Fighters mm-hmm. were like a little bit out of my my age range, I guess. And so um mm-hmm. I go to the library and I just see the cover and I was like, hmm, why the hell not? Because it had a, a missile on it. <laughs> and so I thought that was cool. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And so I pick it up and I take it home and I put it in my CD player. And it was like immediately, like I listened to the whole album twice in a row. And I was just sitting on the ground and I was like drawing. And nothing that I had listened to on the radio, just on the radio stations I was allowed to listen to. <laughs> um, yeah. It really like tugged at me the same way that this album did. And so I just got into the habit of like going to the library every week and getting albums that I had never listened to before that I didn't recognize. And that's how I found such a massive love for like Metallica and Led Zeppelin and all the bands that just became like, like top, top 10, yeah. you know? <laughs> Well, it's interesting to like punk bands, like if you like that, what you're hearing in that kind of garage recording, like a band like the Ramones, and they, they have that kind of rawness because they kind of do lo-fi, yeah. you know, bands like Hooskadu or Replacements, you know, back in the early 80s, like early 90s, there was this whole movement of like pre-grunge with bands like Hooskadu and, you know, Replacements, and they just had this like, you know, a lot of a camper van beethoven they had this like sound it was this indie college radio sound like rem all these bands were like living in this zone and i'm in my 50s so i i grew up during that time and they, there was a sound from the college radio where these bands were lo-fi and they were on like record labels like sst these very indie mm-hmm. labels and they purposely didn't record them 
you know, they record like Sex Pistols or Clash, yeah. you know, the kind of lo-fi recording. But it gave a lot of authenticity to the sound. It was weird when a lot of these bands got signed to Warner's. Mm-hmm. You know, like Who's Could Do got signed to Warner's, and their 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 Warner Brothers albums were good, but they didn't have the authenticity of their SST. Yeah, because their SST recordings were done at this kind of lo-fi garage basement level. They had one album they did in a warehouse. They did it in 48 hours. I love that. They did first to second take. Everything was first, second take in a warehouse. I love that. And they just ran through it. And it's like a double record. But it has more authenticity than anything they did for Warner Yeah. Just because it's a pure punk album recorded like in a punk aesthetic. It, well, exactly. <laughs> I it's It's sad that like in the pursuit of perfection um, a lot of times labels they take out everything that like the audience actually loved about the music you know um and you see that uh, time and time again with like band after band after band and people call it selling out um but it's hard because it's like once if you have a label like there's something so amazing about a label where they you have all this money you have all these resources and people working and it's like your ability to reach a larger audience is it's exponentially more you know um but because you are signed and they're giving you this money and they're giving you these resources you do have to like acquiesce to them to some extent um but in turn you you could lose the thing about you that your audience loves so much so i've been so wary to sign the labels i I don't i don't know like so 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 wary i'm just like waiting to see if I can find the right arrangement with the right people that we're on like, yeah. the exact same page, you know? Yeah, well, sometimes you get bands that they work out like just like a band yes. like Wilco and like Radiohead have yeah. gone like, indie and they've maintained their sound because they basically just work out a distribution deal with the label mm-hmm. to get into the stores, to get into the venues, to be able to get on big tours, but they control the production of their music themselves. That's what I want to do for and sure. I think that's like actually the deal I have with my label right now is I have a home studio and they let me put out everything. They engineer it, but mm-hmm. they let me put out my music pretty much. Only thing they do is engineer it, they don't rearrange it. Yes. They let me do what I want and then they put it out. And you know, I'm on a low, like an indie label, but I'm able to maintain what my aesthetic is. I kind of have a, 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 a punk aesthetic, even though I do electronic music. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> and I, that's what I want to have that sound. I want it to be kind of lo-fi electronic. Mm-hmm. And um that's where that's why I like the label I'm on lets me do that without going and trying to turn it into something else. And that you know, I, I only can reach so many people doing that, but it kind of keep it the way I want it to be, you know. But that's a choice. You know, if somebody ever comes to me with something better, maybe maybe I'll look at it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like when Liz Fair went big. Yeah. And girly sound that she created. uh, And it was kind of like a riot girl, free riot girl. Yeah. And there's something about, like, you know, Exile and Guyville. It has this sound that I don't know if you've ever heard Liz Fair, but she had this very unique sound. And yeah, it's very heard. indie. And, uh, and then when she did her major label thing, it, she, they, they, they put the, the, the kind of the pop uh, refocus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, it's not bad but it wasn't exile and guys though yeah and so it, it got her got her the money she needed and it got her the more fame than she had but she actually kind of retreated and went back on her next release and actually put out like an indie record that was more like the old sound yeah it was, it was interesting because she kind of like okay uh there was a little backlash from her fans they wanted her to go back <laughs> <laughs> But but it's interesting because, you know, her fan base was really indie college radio and they didn't like her going that way. So it was interesting. She kind of got went a step backward to, to, to like college radio level. But, um, yeah, you never know. It's just kind of like what, what the world is today. You try to, you know, as an artist, you got to eat, you got to live. Yeah. Uh, you got to find a way to not have to have a day job. <laughs> <laughs> For real. Music yeah. does not make money. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm an IT guy, you mm-hmm. know, so I can fund all my modes, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I can buy all my modes and I have all my cool gear, but you know, I don't have to try to starve 
hard to starve when you have to buy a Moog. Um, <laughs> yeah, the whole starving musician thing sounds really romantic, but it is difficult. So you got to yeah, have a side hustle for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like everybody has to do what they need to do to get out there. But yeah, I like the idea. I don't give up, you know, either. Mm-hmm. I think you, like, if you love music, you'll keep on creating music till you're like, you're like a jazz guy, you know, or, or old blues guy. They, they don't stop playing until they're done. No. You know, like they like the, the, the Stones are doing what the blues guys do. People are like, why are the Stones still playing? Well, you know, all the blues people guys, they played until they were done. Yeah. And so if you're in that kind of that zone, that's the way you should look at it. But some pop people, they, they're like, oh, I have an expiration date. Because, you know, the idea is it's all youth oriented. And so if once you get past a certain age, it's like, oh, you can't do it anymore. And it's like, but if you're in the blues, you can keep on doing it. If there's certain genres, like, it doesn't matter. Yeah, but but that's where you have to kind of kind of push it and say, well, I'm cross genre. I do I do music. It's just music, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, no, that's that's rough. That's a very good point. Um, with pop music, there is an expiration date on your age, and also especially like with women. Like I feel like there's a a sooner expiration date with women than there is with men because it's like really the audience wants to see someone that's between the ages of like. 17 and 27 like you got like that 10 years (laughs) and and so that causes me a lot of stress because like with how many times I've said no to people and like dealing with all the stuff where I was trying they were trying to turn me into a country musician and and what have you like it did set me back a little bit and so sometimes I get like that little bit of like anxiety of like oh no like it's not like I'm getting close to 27 you know but i I've come to the realization as of late that it's like, it's music, you know, and some of my favorite artists are in their thirties and forties and fifties, you know, and I still listen to them and I listen to every single album the second it comes out, you know? And so I think what's important is just like as musicians, breaking that like getting rid of the idea of an expiration date i think it's really like the corporations that have created that to begin with because you didn't i mean back in the day like even in like the like the 60s 70s it's like there that wasn't so much a thing as it is now you know yeah well aretha franklin was able to keep on going it wasn't like you know she, you know, until her health issues, she was go- going in. A lot of like, you know, soul music, you can keep mm-hmm. on going. Um, uh, like you soul, so there's a you know, resurgence in the light of like neo soul, kind of retro soul, bringing back, you know, people back into the, into, into the spotlight. Um, and it doesn't matter what age you are, no. you know, and it, it is a lot of older soul musicians that were in their late 50s, 60s, still kicking, yeah. you know, you go to New Orleans, they see all these great blues people and soul guys you know people still doing it because it's the music like you said it's the music if you play jazz or soul you can kind of get away with it yeah it kind of like, gives the authenticity it gives you mm-hmm. the bones like the older you are it's like yeah <laughs> you know do people believe mm-hmm. you more when you're saying like you got the hard life and you got the hardness you know you're tying that, that kind of yeah if you're 21 they're like hard. yeah right like, how could you have such a hard life? Like Jack White was kind of carrying that off. He's like a young guy, he's channeling the blues. But you know, you're 22, Jack. Like, you know, it was like when he was doing it. It's like, okay, you're not BB King. You know, you're not kicking off like Curtis Mayfield. You're not, you're not, you know. But but you know, it's it's interesting because like you, you said, the yeah, female artists are kind of putting that. But it's cool to see a band like Sleeper mm-hmm. King still kicking it and they're not in the age category that a lot of record companies would say well you guys yeah and they just put an album out the shows they're not done i mean a four-star rolling stone Mm -hmm. so that that's pretty impressive and i think that should be kind of cool for a lot of women artists to see that they 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 created that right girl genre you know and they're they're still no it's it's amazing like whenever i see female artists that are kicking it and they're like a little bit older or even like coming up in their 30s i'm like oh that that's like a a relief for me a little bit because you know it's like there is that leeway in in like blues and jazz and soul music and all of that but like with with pop it's like super sexy and and they and they want to see some yeah you, you want to see like a diva it's so funny people are always telling me they're like you need to be like a queen and like this big diva and i'm like that is just so hilarious to me like knowing myself it just like makes me laugh a little bit but i do understand like why people want to see that like 
Or they wanted you. They wanted to be, be like Lady Gaga and kind of carry that off. Yeah, <laughs> and I love Lady Gaga. Don't get me wrong; like she has such a powerful no, voice. I, but I, I, yeah, she's cool. I mean, because she tried to do it straight like Bowie, and it didn't work. And then she created like a Bowie like exactly. You know. it's funny how you have to do that so the way I've kind of skirted around it is just it's like I I become a bit of like a character of myself or like a caricature of um, what I'm singing about and for me that that's I can separate myself from a little little bit more because um, like the idea of being a character man for so long that really like bothered me or the idea of my appearance um, being the reason why anyone would be interested in me and my music, yeah. like all of these old guys telling me that I needed to like sex up my appearance and all of that. That, that was rough, but, yeah, but, but it is true. So if I can be like, okay, well, this is a character that I'm using for this kind this song. It's easier to do. <laughs> but yeah, you know, the cool thing about going in the dark wave, you could kind of go into this kind of gothic vampire, you know, not the, <laughs> way, but if you're going dark wave, you can do things. They kind of have a horror-esque, you know, Alfred Hitchcock vibe, or and it doesn't really matter if you use, you know, all kinds of, you know, visual cues or themes mm -hmm. that would matter your age if you can carry off that kind of, you know, an Elvira look or like a, like you know, an old school Alfred Hitchcock, you know, Twilight Zone Outer Limits kind of black and white look. There are things you can do that you could keep on presenting if you're creative you could present an image that doesn't necessarily have to focus on you. exactly and that's that's what i that's kind of like the goal that i'm setting out right now like with the blood diamond music video super super just like jarring and kind of creepy <laughs> um but, but i like that i like that going like the more dark direction i have a little bit more like liberty with like the visuals that i can use and yeah because if you go with horror you can always come up with all kinds of you know different visual characterizations and directors that could take something and it's like you know you're playing the character so if you're playing a character it can be anything yeah you know and it doesn't have to be a 20 year old or 17 year old you can present yourself in a different way you know and it brings like a fantasy element to it like if you can take it a little bit outside of reality then all of those like confines of like age and whatnot that they go along with it you know yeah cause you go into science fiction you could go into like retro you could do like a you know twenties flapper look. You could do all kinds you of crazy. Could. You can you can go into any age and and change the use all kinds of you know going back to original MTV. You know people directors would just go off and do something that has nothing to do. With yeah, the song. just for fun. You know, <laughs> just for fun to do a video that has nothing to do with the song. It's just totally artistic. You know, kind of like a you know, have a, like, uh, you know, Velvet Underground. And yeah. You know, have, have, a, have a strange kind of vibe, you know, like like Bowie. Bowie just created all these characters. It, it's great. And as he got older, he just didn't matter. He was still doing these characters. And he just kept on doing them. And it's different reinventions of himself. You know? It made it so, it made it fun and like really intriguing um, because it, it, it just never got boring. You know, never got boring. It was never same old, same old. It's like instead of like changing who he was like as as a person, like overall, it was like it was always morphing from project to project, from song to song. And so it's like you just it's like he was the frame um, for whatever piece of work he was showing the public. Yeah. And if you do it from a theatrical standpoint, I think you have a lot of life and a lot you can like argue to the marketing people is like if i do this kind of image and i can do that and i get the right visual people to help me do the videos and do my stage show and actually present you know uh i think because like a lot of artists like i think they ask prince is like how come you just don't come out like in blue jeans or whatever he's like because i want to do a yeah. show you know i want to i think that like what james brown little richard used to do they would do shows they would present themselves you know parliament funkadelic they used to come out in these space fields. yeah <laughs> Yeah, you know, Sunra did that too. Like a band, there was a jazz American band called Sunra that kind of predated Funkadelic. That was a jazz outfit that was playing jazz. That was like bebop, um, Miles Davis type jazz, but they wore space. It's outfits so wild with space capes. And I think George Clinton saw them and took that idea because it didn't really catch on when Sunra did it in yeah. the fifties. But but by the time you get to the seventies, it worked yeah. for Funkadelic. But it was interesting, like, they thought they should present a show. 
you know, and a lot of acts, you know, if you present yourself and Prince had the kind of Bowie thing too. He was presenting himself in different like looks for every mm-hmm. album would have a certain look. I mean, the whole parade look where he wore the kind of bikini top was a different look than purple. Yeah. And the look for Sign of Times was a different look for Sign of Times. He was doing like the same thing. He was creating these like characters for every album. He had a different hairstyle, different look, different costumes. And I think when you do stuff like that, then you can kind of like extend your your, your life or your, your show. Or I your think act. so. I think you're totally right about that. All right. So <laughs> we've been talking a while. That's cool. But yeah, <laughs> we um we love to talk to artists about their albums, and uh, you've got that new record out. And uh, so, have you been um touring for this record? Um, I am getting a tour set up for the spring right now. I've been playing like a lot of shows locally, and I have had the wonderful opportunity to meet um a local promoter that puts on like a lot of huge shows here. And so it's so funny, like I never would have expected, but I've been playing shows with a lot of drag queens and they know how to put on a show at it. And it has inspired me to put on more shows. Like, well, I guess like be more theatrical and um, it has been absolutely amazing. Like, I feel like every show I play just gets better and better. And I'm, I'm just grateful because that's all thanks to, people I've just come in contact with in the scene, you know? So I'm, I've, I'm playing always. I have two shows coming up actually in Salt Lake this upcoming week. So should be good. That's great. Well, I think uh, we'll probably have to end it here. Yeah. But we're going to put this out on 11 different podcast platforms, including Apple and Spotify. Awesome. Um, and I'll send you the links as they become available. Perfect. Uh, it is not live. What happens is that we record it, then we publish it, then it goes out to all of our 11 podcast platforms. Mm-hmm. And so then when we have that link, uh, what's cool is that hi- there are hyperlinks that can be associated with the actual podcast that are clickable. Um, so I can put your podcast link. And if you have any other links, you can send me links that you want to have appear on this um episode if you you have any particular link you want people to go to oh awesome well i will send you some stuff and it's been a treat to talk to yeah and thanks for asking me yeah as you when you we we've had three four times so if you have a brand new album uh in the next year or any other kind of project you want to talk about we we can always um you know put you on again super cool well thank you yeah let me know once you have it up and i will share it on all my platforms as well well, this was Sarah Gibson, and we thank you for being on the Electric Go Show. Have a great thank night. Thank you so much.